everybody. This is Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations, and we have another one of those packed shows, so we're going to really roll along. But, you know, um, we're going to be talking about our um, disappearing coast. Uh, that's a frequent conversation here, but there's been a huge new um, output from the New York Times and the Times-Picayune on this that I think um, caught a lot of people by surprise. Um, we have Andronikia. Andronika. Yep, Damn, you got it. I always want it. to put that I-A in there. Oops, <laughs> I think I said a bad word on the – done that before. Um, uh, who's going to talk with us about housing and things that are happening on the riverfront. And um, Mark Schliffstein is going to hear to talk about the coastal situation. And um, one of my favorite buddies, Bill McKesson, is here from the opera, and he is going to talk about – Terrence Blanchard's new opera. I am so excited about wow, this. Yeah. Major, major thing that it's called Champion. And it's about a boxer. And as I said in my notes, maybe not a likely subject for an opera, but by the time you hear the discussion, you will be convinced. So let me just start with two quick announcements. Um, the Islenos La Fiesta is happening this weekend in St. Bernard Parish at the um, uh, Cultural Center there, the Los Islenos Heritage and Cultural Center. This is a must, y'all, because this is one of our kind of, you know, less known um, uh, indigenous groups in the city, the Islenos, uh, who are derived, they're Spanish, but they're from the Canary Islands, and they're very special people, and they're, 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 um, Ancestors, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, what's the right word? The descendants are still living here in um, St. Bernard Parish and mm-hmm. carrying on the traditions, and so they can still speak, sing, dance, eat, of course, uh, in the traditions. Right. And so you want to join them for the event this weekend, and uh, we'll, we'll be sending something out on that. And um, I also want to remind you all, and we had a long conversation about this a couple shows ago, about the um, sixth annual downtown NOLA arts-based business pitch. The final deadline is tomorrow. The application is easy. And don't think you are not eligible. You'd be surprised. You should really consider putting in um, your application. And so I want you to... Think about this. All you have to do really to to figure it out, make it easy for you, is go to the Downtown Development District website and you will find how to enter. And please do it because it's worth about $40,000 in a combination of cash and assistance in getting your business off the ground. So... um, don't 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 ignore this opportunity, guys. You've been dreaming. You, you you've got that dream, that idea, and and this is your chance to uh, get some support for it and and training to boot. Okay, so we're gonna hit the hard stuff mm-hmm. first and talk about a recent action by the council, city council, to approve plans for development on the riverfront. Right, which. Folks in the community who are concerned about our housing That's right. um, uh, opportunities um, were hoping would include a provision for affordable housing. That was the plan. That was everything that had been discussed up until that point 
was a modification of the existing density bonuses. Right now we have a density bonus that allows for a 5% requirement on the base. Uh, the discussions that were had around uh, any development in that area uh, receiving the density bonuses, the ability to increase the number of floors, had to have a substantial provision uh, for affordability. And what was discussed up until that point, what came out of the City Planning Commission, uh, what community had been in support of, what we in the affordable housing community had been in support of, Gene, was a 10% requirement. And uh, a lot of people were surprised to walk into that council meeting and to see an amendment that would remove that from, because this had come through City Planning Commission with the 10% affordability enshrined in it. So the council members had to uh, call an audible, as it were, that morning from the dais and, uh, and change it to, to have it be, have the affordability requirements removed. And, and let me just establish one thing. This is, this is not like some kind of revolutionary idea. No. This is a practice that is now common in cities um, all over America, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's fairly common in a lot of countries on the globe. Right. To try to make sure that the people who work for us right. in our restaurants, in our hotels, in our schools, in our hospitals – can get to work. That's right. Without exactly. having to, you know, uh, wait for a bus and, and, and travel two hours in the morning and two hours at night, barely see their kids and, 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 and work for us. Right. That's right. Exactly. I mean, to be able to, to get, get yeah. into the center of the city. Exactly. To not have a segregated city based on income and race and to consign the people who make the city go at a, a variety of levels be, and say that they have to live outside the city. That, that's not sustainable. Um, it's not good policy, and it's not right. So um, when you talk about where we are right now, and again, that's just basic common sense policy. We are not in a position in New Orleans to, be, to no longer be even doing what's basic common sense. We have to do the extraordinary because we're in an extraordinary set of circumstances. 61% of our renters which are the majority of the people who live in New Orleans, are cost burden. They're living check to check. They are one, one loss, one emergency, one problem away from, from homelessness because they're spending more than 30% of their gross income on their housing costs. We are, from a, when it comes to being rent stressed and cost burden, the city of New Orleans is the second worst rental market in the country. We are ahead of New York City. We are ahead of Austin. We are ahead of Atlanta. We are ahead of Dallas. We are only second to the city of San Francisco. And we don't have the things that those cities have. We have a city that has a lot of blight. There's a lot of opportunity. And so why isn't development matching what we need? And it's because we're not requiring it. it it's what's being built is being sustained artificially and by some other things like short-term rental and this notion that we're going to have all of these um, these high wages return to the city somehow magically. And those folks, and what's going to happen is, what will happen is those developers will not be able to sustain those prices. They will go to short-term rental. And we're seeing it already. This isn't doomsday prediction. This isn't pro prognostication. This is what's already happening. The city council has gotten several appeals from developers to allow them to convert residential properties that would only be able to do short-term rental part of the year into commercial properties where they can run them as small hotels 
um, down, and that's not what we what um, what anybody thought our short-term rental pilots would be doing. And in order for the market correction we need, because our market isn't working, um, we have to really be intentional. We have to be deliberate, and our, our representatives have to make decisions that meet the needs of most of the people who live here. And and you know, just to to underscore a couple of things. First of all, we used to be a market where there was a lot less of naturally, expensive naturally occurring affordable housing. That's right. Forty five percent of the rental market before the storm rented between three hundred and four hundred and ninety nine dollars. Sixty percent of all homes in New Orleans before Hurricane Katrina were valued at one hundred thousand dollars or less. So while it wasn't affordable for uh, for those prices were still a struggle for someone who was making seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour. That was certainly still a struggle. Even if you were by yourself, that was still a struggle. But if you were making $10 an hour, $12 an hour, you could make it work. Now we're seeing people who make $50,000 a year, and they're not able to buy. What was the argument on the part of the council people? Because, you know, I, I, I can't paint a, a terrible picture about our council people, generally speaking, but what what was their thinking? I what they articulated from the dais um, ranged from the borderline offensive to uh, not terribly clear. So when I say borderline offensive, and actually it was really offensive, um, there were comments made by council members saying that poor people wouldn't want to live in a nice building; they wouldn't feel comfortable, and that's offensive. Uh, the other comments were about the worry around stagnating development, and that's just not, again, that's not logical. That's not true. It's it's something easily disproven. Other comments were about the smart housing mix, why we need to wait for the smart housing mix when, in fact, the city council is the body. This council, these seven individuals, are the people who could have enacted the city, the smart housing mix, which would have required for any new development, a percentage of it be set aside for affordable housing for anywhere from 50 to 99 years. They were the body. They are the body that could pass, that could, that could in that, enshrine that legislation. And that's something that they have been, they have been able to do for, um, since we fought off um, state preemption legislation last summer. That has been something that this council could have taken up at any point, and they haven't. So... Uh, saying let's wait for the smart housing mix doesn't make a lot of sense when they are the body. That's not coming from the federal government. That's not coming from the state. This is a piece of legislation that they could have enacted. So that, that's okay. I, I, I'm not going to ask. Those articulated. That's what was. You can read it in the paper. You can see the, um, what they said on YouTube. I'm not going to press you on speculating. Therefore, if it was confusing and illogical, what? underlying reasons might have been involved. We're not going to speculate on that. Yeah. But now what? Now what? Um, we have to, we have options, right? So this is a piece of legislation that has to be signed by the mayor. And so this mayor can, and I believe he should, veto this. Um, even if it comes back and it's sustained, community didn't know that this was happening. Uh, again, there were we were there. Um, a lot of the affordable housing advocates were there because we had some other issues in front of the council. And it just happened that this stuff aligned, so we were able to be there. Uh, preservationists, community members were there to talk about different issues. And we were able to unify as we scrambled to, to deal with the audible, um, to speak with one voice. And, and, but again, we weren't, able to, we weren't able to represent and truly demonstrate community's concern for this. And turn so, around something that, um, again, uh, obviously there had been some kind of uh, coming together on the council behind this for whatever reason. Um, again... 
what now? So that's one. Let's say I, 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 the the mayor is so much in favor of riverfront development, Mm -hmm. but he's also been in favor of. Uh, these affordable housing requirements. He showed a lot of courage and a lot of, um, because this isn't the first time we've seen this in in the last few years, the infamous Edwards Communities Project. It's it's misnomered. It's been called, it's often called the Sydney Torrance's Project along the Greenway, and it's not. It's the Edwards Communities. Uh, The administration were the ones that um, said, no, we, you guys need to have affordable housing included in this in exchange for the density that you want. So we've seen this already. This has already played out before. Uh, and so, again, they, they took a leadership role there. Um, we're hoping to see them do it again. People need to let them know that, um, that, that they're all still on the clock, right, and that this isn't a break and that we're still, we still need our leaders to lead. Okay. Um, let's, let, let's say that um, – the mayor um, does not. No, let, let's let's uh, well okay, let's do both. Yeah. Let's say the mayor uh, vetoes it. Right. Then. So we turn everyone out of the next council meeting that where they would take it up again because then they could do a veto. They have to vote to override his veto, or they could decide to let it stand. Um, but the council would have to take this up again because the overlay would still have to be passed. Do we do want to see an overlay pass? That includes an affordable housing development. So whether it would be this council or the next council that would take that up, it would it would be up right. to them. And then you'll have an opportunity to Bring get people, the word out, exactly. which you weren't able to do in this case because it was so unexpected. That's correct. Okay, that's correct. so uh, that's one thing. Now, um, part of the argument, of course, is well, okay, we're just talking here about the riverfront, just the riverfront. I mean, the riverfront of New Orleans is is the iconic territory of the mm-hmm. city, so it's very important. But what are the other key measures that you are looking towards to ameliorate this horrible shortage of, of, of um, affordable housing? Just so we get that yes, in, in so this discussion. One quick thing, though, it's not just the riverfront. Even though this overlay would only af- affect the riverfront, it affects the adjoining neighborhoods like the Bywater, the Marinade. That's why those communities are so concerned because those are some of the last areas. And, again, we've had gentrification there. We've got prices explain, uh, exploding. But there are also some fixed prices there, house values, people who already own their property, they're still able to make do. This property, the riverfront, becomes a luxury-only property. That's going to affect prices in those adjoining neighborhoods even more so. It's going to intensify so the it's gentrification. it's going to intensify the problems, yeah. and it's yeah. just going to add to it. So the other thing— No, I see. I, I didn't so, think about that. Yeah, so yep. we've, this, is a, this is a problem. That's why right. the neighborhood associations have been so, so passionate about this and have been, have been you know, really great allies to the affordable housing community on this issue. And, again, that's why we were all so blindsided by this because we don't often— you know, they, everybody gets a bad rap. We, when we can sit down and talk these things through, we can work together. Um, but the other things that we're looking at are, again, we've got to deal with uh, the fact that the current administration, the federal administration, the Trump administration is looking to defund HUD. So the city of New Orleans has to have a dedicated revenue source to create housing. Uh, we've identified those sources in the past. We've got to get our legislators and our city council members to put to move money. Namely, the re- the revenue from short-term rental needs to be only um, working on creating more affordable housing. What an excellent idea that is! <laughs> and we know have we have you been talking with the transition committee we've, about yep, that? Those are okay, the things good. that we've been offering yeah. and suggesting. Uh, that's, we're, a, that's a terrific idea. Yeah, we've uh, we've made those. Up there, we understand that they're reviewing the recommendations for housing NOLA for 2018. That's front and center inside of them, so we're going to see what the recommendations come out of it. We also need to be talking about property tax 
um, reduction and in some kind of way and some kind of assistance offering to offer to homeowners whose neighborhoods are appreciated. Well, how does that look? What does that look like? And we can't wait five years. We can't wait ten years. We've got to figure out how to act and act quickly. And by the way, I just want to get a word in on this because this is something I know that affects everybody in so many different income categories, and that is taxes. So there are people who literally are being priced out of their homes because their taxes are going up, because their property values are going up because of gentrification, and they literally cannot afford the tax bill. I don't understand. There must be some national precedent for... Um, ideas of grandfathering people, senior commitments. That's also in the Housing NOLA plan that we need to look at these issues. We need to figure out a strategy and implement it now rather than later. We also are talking about energy efficiency. That's another reason that a lot of people are cost burdened, rent stress, housing insecure, their utility bills. A lot of people live in, and that was another, um, you know, unfortunate decision that the council made last week. The plan said advance the utility power plant in New Orleans East that we will pay for, that will increase everyone's power bill, and we won't get any energy efficiency for I, it. I, you know, it's just amazing. What they're doing is making very major policy decisions with a month Barely over a month to go before there's a new council. So it's kind of like there's some folks who are just trying on behalf of I don't know who mm-hmm. uh, is lobbying them for this to get these provisions passed through at the at the last minute. It's just it's uh, it's mystifying. And that's why we talk about the Put Housing First campaign, because we've got to start talking about getting voters, registered voters educated and that they understand that the council members understand that we they work for us and that. If you've got 60 days left, if you've got five days left, if you've got one day left, your obligation is still to us. And just also to point it out, not everyone is leaving. Uh, people are staying. People are moving into other roles. We need those folks to, you know, again, lead, to continue to lead the way they have in the past. Housing NOLA plan, is that available online? That's available online. The Housing NOLA plan is available at If you w- just put in housing? If you just Google Housing NOLA, you'll find us, yes. Okay, so so people should really take a look at that. That's right. So that'll help inform them on what's important for us to try to enact mm-hmm. or not. And um, right. uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry that I can't give you more time. We have such a full show. Oh, thank you, Jean. You, you keep me informed. Definitely. And um, any releases, you know, we'll put them in our newsletter. We'll get you back on the show as this develops. But definitely keep me in, um, up to date on it because it is something I'm very concerned about. I, I don't want to see people pushed out of the city, and um, I want to see people who work here be able to live here. Thank you so much, Jean. Thank you very much. Now, um, that was our hard, tough story, and uh, please, everybody, pay attention and get involved in that. How are you doing down here? <laughs> I'm missing a, a little plug-in here. Okay, why don't you, you want to move to the other mic? We're going we're gonna to move to the other mic. That'll be a little bit uh, better a setup for our next speaker, who's, who's got this very exciting um, story to share with us about... Oh my God! I mean, I'm I, I really this is just something I I'm, I'm thrilled about the idea of Terrence Blanchard, who is such a talent, compos- in composition, yeah, and 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 composing and um and things that he's been doing on on films for years with people like Spike Lee, of course. He's done a lot of work with him, but now George he's Lucas. done his own <laughs> opera, which is just fantastic, and I want you to share a lot 
about this with us so that people come out and hear it. This is Joe McKesson. He's the Director of Marketing and Audience Development for the New Orleans Opera. This is also a very important development for our opera because our opera has tended to be uh, an organization that has favored the more traditional operas, understandable. Everybody loves them. Everybody wants to go hear them. Um, but there are new operas being written, too. And Absolutely. if you have a guy like <laughs> Terrence Blanchard right in your hometown yeah. whose opera has already been performed in Washington, D.C., at right. the Kennedy Center in St. Louis to big, big, big positive credits, we surely are excited to have it here in New Orleans. And, and Joe, you were kind of a, a fan of this idea, right? Oh, yeah, from the get-go. I mean, part of my – I've only been in New Orleans a year. In fact, tomorrow will be my Don't first admit full that. year. I know. <laughs> I, well, I, I do it on my own podcast because I want people to know I'm a noob um, to, to the to We the call scene. you newbies. Newbie. Yeah, because um, I, uh, I love the city, and I love learning cities uh, very slowly. I like to creep in, meet people, and get to know people while I do my work. And with New Orleans Opera, you know, they bit off a lot of excitement by, by programming champion last year, and also this whole year. The 75th anniversary is full of amazing operas, Maria de Buenos Aires that we started the season with and so on. You know, But now Champion is historic for many reasons. One, it's the first opera performed by the New Orleans Opera Association written by an African-American, which I think for New Orleans should be significant. It, um, there is not a huge history of African-American opera writers, but there are, there are many. And there was a period in time here in New Orleans when... Uh, free people of color were performing operas regularly in the French opera house in, in the Latin Quarter. I mean, it's so French fascinating, Quarter. isn't yeah. it? Uh, in an era of segregation, of even slavery, and, and yet you had um, free people of color performing opera. Yeah, pre performing, writing, and, and going back and forth between Europe without any restriction, just like normal people, which, which half the population of New Orleans couldn't do, if not more. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it is an interesting phenomenon, like a little cultural bubble, you know. So it's nice now, you know, all these years later, 300 years later, I suppose, you know, to be able to, uh, to, to have Terrence Blanchard, who's kind of been a hero of mine since I was a kid, actually, because we're about the same age. And so I kind of grew up knowing his music, you know, seeing him advance as a, as a Wunderkind, you know, with, with uh, Art Blakely, you know, and in his first album, you know, which won a Grammy, you know, I mean, yeah. this kid That's was so blessed. Funny. I, I don't <laughs> think of him performing that much anymore because he's so important in, in his scores for films and so forth, yeah. No, totally, you know, yeah. but people are always asking him to break out his trumpet, but <laughs> in, in, in this situation, I've come to know him over the last, actually, decade as a film co score composer exactly. and a composer of new works. Yeah. Um, original albums, you know, and, and of course the, the, um, the wonderful Requiem for Katrina, you know, which is heartbreaking in its own right, which he, he won his own independent Grammy for, not part of a group, you know, yeah. and uh, which is part of the, uh, the beginning of a story for this opera in terms of his pride for winning that Grammy and being able to hug his wife in full view of an audience and realizing that someone like Emil Griffith, the hero of Champion, wouldn't 
be able to do that. And how equality in terms of who you love is just as significant as what color you are. Right. And, uh, and in New Orleans, actually, we can even add a whole other layer to that is what class you are yeah. and what level of population you come from. Right. So, so to tell us uh, very quickly uh, in a kind of snapshot the story of the opera. The story of the opera is uh, about Emil Griffith, who himself was an immigrant to the Bronx um, from the islands. And uh, he, you know, he was a talented boxer. He fell right into it. He just had a, an affinity for it, you know, and uh, and he was trained up to the highest level and became a three-time welterweight winner. Um, the entire opera is seen through the older Emile, so it's a series of flashbacks from the 1950s to when he first arrived as a kid to the 1960s when, of course, he he had this tragic fight with Benny, the kid Perrette, um, which basically led to, to Benny's death. Um, and it wasn't, it's, it, it's, your life changes in an instant, in, instance in this in this opera because, you know, um, you know, most people knew about Emile's sexuality. You know, sexuality in the late 50s and, and early 60s was something you just didn't talk about. You know, people went and did their 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 private, um, you know, uh, uh, preferences, and it wasn't something that people shared. The press knew it, but you just didn't out somebody. And it came down to blows on that one eventful fight that Benny Perrette, to get the edge on Emile in the pre in the pre fight press conference out at him, which of course led to him losing his everything at once in his mind. You know, we keep a lot of control around our secrets in life, and uh, and that's the, kind of the tragedy of it. But the wonderful thing about this opera is, of course, it's Terence Blanchard. So he wants to take you all the way to the beautiful finale, which is redemption through love. It's how do you turn around from killing someone in full public view? You know, ending ostensibly Friday Night Fights, which were one of the biggest television draws in the early 60s. I mean, every Friday night, people in front of their little teeny box televisions watching fights. And this tragic fight ended that. Oh, wow. I yeah. didn't know that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ended it forever. Mm. Um, people just couldn't deal with seeing someone who that brutalized. I mean, 17 blows in just a handful of seconds. And Benny Perrette was basically brain dead in wow. the ring, you know. And so that that tragedy, but it turns around because he's able to come to terms with sexuality, with becoming happy, with separating from his wife, with finding someone who can love him, you know, as he is, which is always a and with request. communicating mm -hmm. with the family of the man he killed. That's right. Right. Well, communicating with the family and trying to come to terms with what he did and apologize for it. You know, that's something that we never do enough, even even in the moment. You know, we say the wrong thing or we blurt out something or, you know, uh, or as your previous guest was saying, people say inappropriate things that that get looks that should be apologized for. Even even weeks later, it's never too late to apologize for saying the wrong thing when you know it left an impression. OK, so now I'm <laughs> sure my audience knows why this is actually a classic example of an opera subject. It has all of the ingredients, the drama, mm -hmm. the heavy, heavy emotional um, uh, factors, yeah. um, the, the, the coming around, the change, because uh, I think a very typical thing in operas is an evolution of a situation from bad to good, from good to bad. Right. And um, so uh, this is an incredible subject. Why did um, Terence tackle this? 
I think the subject really resonated with him in many ways. You know, he, he's a boxing fan just naturally. Yeah, I know. It's like, well, he is? Yeah. And I guess as part of his workout, he spars, oh, and he likes okay. to train like a boxer. So it was, uh-huh. uh, it kind of was a natural thing for him. And he came across Emile's story, and it was really then when he won that Grammy that he realized how important this story was. Yeah. You know, because this person went through a very tragic way of being outed and it, it kind of destroying their lives, especially psychologically. You know, this poor guy, when he uh, he never got to see the opera, he, he died the year that the opera was, was premiered. But he knew it was being but he did know. developed. Well, that's yeah. important, too. Yeah. Um, so uh, let, let, let's pin down the facts on this because I don't want to lose track of that because we don't have a ton of time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when is this playing? It's uh, next weekend, March 9th and 11th, 8 o'clock on the 9th. That's a Friday. And 2.30 on Sunday, the 11th. And we really want people to come. We want you to come even if you've never been to an opera. Because modern opera, and actually all opera, is evergreen. And, and it's in English, for goodness sake, right? It's, it's so in English. <laughs> you can understand everything that's being said. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I haven't really – you know, I meant to ask you to bring a snippet of it to play, and I totally – um, I was so busy today that I forgot to do that. So um, how can somebody – is it is it is it online at all? Is there a little snippet of it? We have on, on your... our Facebook page and on our website on the Champion page, which is neworleans.org slash champion. neworleans.org slash champion. Yep. Okay. We have an excerpt of a guy who's actually performing it here, Aubrey Alacock, singing What Makes a Man a Man, which is the first act – uh, soliloquy for the young Emil. Um, there, there are three Emils. There's the the, uh, the real Emil Griffith, who is the elder statesman, who's re, who's remembering all this. Then the young uh, the young Emil, who is the boxer Emil, and then there's even little Emil, the the child, you know, uh, who, who was separated from his mother and then reunited. You know, they didn't even recognize each other when they were finally reunited. Mm. You know, which was mm. the, the case in many immigrant households. Even our our uh, star uh, Arthur Woodley went went through this phenomenon because his mother sent him to America to to get a foothold, you know, um, in, in, in education and stuff like that, and then sent him back to the islands. But they were very seldom at the same place at the same time mm-hmm. because of where she was working to get the money going uh, back and forth. Yeah. yeah. Life is not easy. Never. Uh, my husband is always <laughs> reminding me when I was saying, that's not fair, and he'll say, life is not fair. Yeah, it, so. it comes with that rubber stamp, unfortunately. But but Terrence <laughs> must have uh, spent some time then with Emil. Oh yes, they met. And, so and so spoke. he really got to know uh, him personally and and really understand his um, his experience, his life experience. Oh yeah, I, I, you know uh, it, what's what's been the great revelation of this is to meet someone like Terrence, who you've listened to his music his, your whole life, and to find out that his sensitivity is as real and genuine as it comes. And that really comes out in the opera, even in the casting choices. You know, the stars we have are all connected to the opera in some way, like they had some experience. And and that's not something they knew from, you know, from auditioning, you know. So, so, I I, I mean, all the stars are aligned on this. Mm -hmm. This is a phenomenal talent, Terrence Blanchard, who, by the way, I really want him on my show next week. I know. You I know. tell him WBOK is a very, very important media outlet. We are the urban station in this city. I want the people who listen to my show and other shows on WBOK to come to this opera. So he must come on and talk directly to his potential 
um, audience. Absolutely. And um, so, you know, I think people think that opera is, again, is something for, I don't know, somebody else. Not for them. You know, there's this weird perception about opera, especially in America, because of the way opera came to America. In America, we look at opera as something for the rich. And that's just not true. That was never the case in Europe. You know, there was uh, there were always balconies, you know, for the esteemed, uh, you know, less less than rich. And you could buy your way into any section of the opera. And if you go all the way back, even to the operas that were held in the court, at least three quarters of the audience for every early opera. This is like Versailles, Versailles, and uh, and in England and everywhere like that. You know, these fancy courts where they did opera with under the kings. Well, most of that audience was servants. You know, opera wow. has always been for everyone. And uh, even in New York, you know, when I was a kid, I would wear shorts and a sweater because I would be the only outfit I'd have for the the spring. And I would wear that to the Met and buy, you know, a $25 student ticket, sit way up at this desk where I couldn't see a thing. And the minute the lights went out, I would sneak all the way down to orchestra. And I didn't care how I dressed. I just wanted to hear and see and eat up opera, you know, living art. I have to admit to you that I was not – early on an opera fan and, and I'm extremely broad in my music tastes uh, and, and I, I I had a hard time getting over the hurdle of not understanding what anybody was talking about because they were usually speaking in French or Italian um, but I started going to the Met and the thing that grabbed me as a overall arts person was the productions mm-hmm. which are so incredible in opera they're just these over the top um, or they could be actually very minimal, but always extraordinarily thought, thoughtful and interesting, in some cases very beautiful and dramatic. So um, that's also a part of the story of opera. It's, it's, it's the music, but it's also the entire production that's so exciting. Well, this is where the poet and the artist and the, and the musician come together to present probably the greatest spectacle you can see. And we have to really look at this opera as something special. You know, it's Terence Blanchard's first opera. We want more Terence Blanchard operas in New Orleans, in New Orleans, right? We want him on the board of our opera. We want him to embrace opera here in the oldest city uh, in the country that's that's had opera for over 222 years. Go, Joe. I okay. know. <laughs> now, one, one other important point. People think of opera as expensive. Right. Well, no, we have tickets for $26. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, nothing. That's nothing people in the balcony. Pay, pay, people pay that to go to a club. They do. Oh yeah. The, well, and they pay. When you think about how much people pay to go to like a U2 concert or some or some stupid band that comes to the to hey, Superdome. Hey, hey, don't you call that any stupid some, band? Now. Some amazing band that comes <laughs> some there. Some amazing <laughs> band. <thank you. laughs> They're willing to pay two hundred dollars. So you know, for for us with with this particular opera, we want people to come out because we want them to experience it. It's one of the most lavish productions we have ever done. So, really? Oh yeah. A lot of money I went into the set. I thought it would be set. more minimal. Well, it is and it isn't because it's modern. You know, we have projections and we, we have oh. steel frames that we don't normally use because most of our sets have been, you know, a wood and, and canvas-based like that. But, so you really, I, but I really want people to look at this opera as an opera to represent. You know, it's like people turned out in mass for Black Panther. Yeah. And we need people including to do this. Including me. Including Just you. Including me. Just saw Sunday night. I went, I went the first Saturday That was like afternoon. an opera production. That was an opera. It yeah. was a complete opera with yeah. music and singing and everything. Right. You know, and so we need people to represent at this opera, too, to represent for Terrence and for more African-American opera composers because we need more. They need to be encouraged to come out and write opera. You know, string quartets isn't going to make it to, to, to make the American voice go mainstream. And that's really what we're talking about. But. 
over and above all, yep. it is going to be a phenomenal musical experience. Oh, yeah. At a very reasonable price. How do people buy tickets, real quick? Oh, they can go to New Orleans Opera and just click tickets. And if cool. you, and it'll take you right to the page. Now, if you're a student, go all the way down, and you and four friends can go for $10 a piece. There's a $40 student pass, which allows for four performances. And you can go as a group. You can bring your friends. Oh, that's terrific. So that's 10 bucks. That's even cheaper than 26 really? So there's no reason for no one to not go to this opera. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, Joe, thank you so much. No, thank um, you. On behalf of the opera, on behalf of Terrence, on behalf of the uh, music of our city, on the story of Emil Griffin, which is, is obviously a heart-rending story. And um, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Stay uh, put. I just want to introduce the next subject real quickly because um, – uh, the uh, interview is going to roll now uh, for a bit, and this is going to be Mark Schliffstein, who is going to talk to us about our disappearing coast. Now, listen, y'all, he's going to hit the numbers a little bit. He's going to, he know, he's he's going to give you the the hard stuff. So um, stay with it, okay? Thank you. Who has always been one of my um, favorite reporters? Um, he is so really dedicated to his beat, which is our environment. And um, thank goodness for that, because uh, we really need to know what's going on. And most recently, Mark Schliffstein with TimesPicayunola.com um, was part of a collaboration with the New York Times in putting together this amazing special section that just took this whole discussion to another level. And for, as someone who had worked on this way back, you know, and before Katrina, um, I'm just uh, amazed at, um, at the value, I think, the value impact of that section. Uh, and I don't know what you've heard so far, but I, I have to assume that um, it's hit a lot of people right in between their eyes. Well, I hope so. I, it, it seems to be getting some traction uh, nationally, which is good, and I'm hoping that people in the local community also are are taking a look at it because it's it's part of my efforts to uh, increase the conversation about what our risk levels are here in the city of New Orleans. It's something that obviously I started before Katrina. You know, we did a series back in uh, 2002 called Washing Away that talked about how the city's risk was increasing because of sea level rise and how the levees were too low at that time. I did not know that they were improperly built as well, uh, but after Katrina, we Learned looked that. at that as well. Yeah. And so um, what, this here, what this new uh, project has done, uh, what we try to do is, is summarize where we are today and what our future is. And so um, there are two parts of it. One that uh, John Schwartz and uh, Kevin Sack with the New York Times were the lead reporters on. Looked at um, what were what are the risks for communities that live outside these huge levees that we've built around ourselves. And we used John Lafitte as, uh, as an example. Um, a community where uh, its mayor has been trying for years to get increased uh, protection through uh, a new hurricane barrier wall, a levee around him, um, and uh, has been unsuccessful. They, they, they finally succeeded in getting a smaller levee, about seven feet above sea level, that will protect from, uh, 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 from basically smaller storms, uh, and, but not really hurricanes. Uh, but 
Um, the, the state, as part of the 2017 master plan, finally just said no, that um, building a major 100-year protection level uh, around the, uh, the Jean Lafitte communities would cost a billion dollars, and there's just not enough people living there to make that financially feasible. So they're having to deal with what that means. Part of it is that they have gotten this additional money to protect them from uh, some potential effects of sea level rise, includes, including tidal uh, increases that are going to be occurring. Um, and they're expecting to get additional money through one of the, the projects that the state will be doing to elevate homes as well if people want to buy into that, if they want to go ahead and, and, and try to get their, their homes and buildings elevated. Yeah, because there really are two choices that people are faced with now. And, and I've been trying to parse this myself in the projects that I do in the arts, actually, which, of course, everybody in the arts now is so sensitive to the environmental issues. So there's a lot of work being done to address it. And, and that is, you know, we have a theme called Living with Climate Change. And then um, the other one we have is migration. In fact, we have a show up right now called Migration at the Crevasse 22 uh, in Poydras, um, which is definitely a threatened area. So, um, you know, when you talk about staying, you have to raise. You really do have to raise in these areas. And um, if you're talking about going, then that's very complicated. Now, of course, a lot of people have went, so to speak, you know, uh, St. Bernard lost um, about 25,000 people that have not returned, for, as an example. They're right. living on the North Shore. Half the time when I'm trying to reach somebody who's a duck carver or an artist or something from there, I'm, I'm dialing 985 before I get somebody. So it, it's, it's, it's profound. It is truly profound. But we tend to think of these things in terms of St. Bernard and Lafitte and... Uh, Il Saint Jean, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Il, Il, Saint. De, Il, Il de Jean Charles. Okay, Il de Saint Charles. How about let's deal with the Seventh Ward? Let's deal so with okay, the so Sixth Ward. Right, and, and, and so. The, New Orleans, in the heart the, of New Orleans. The second one of our main articles, the one that I was largely involved in, um, we dealt with what is this new levy system? What kind of protection does it actually give us? And. What our conclusion is basically that yeah, it's it. We now have the best built levee system in the United States. It is built to new high standards for how le, uh, earthen levees and how wall flood walls and gates and things like that uh, can be built. That the Corps of Engineers put in place after lessons learned from Hurricane Katrina, and it. It takes into account a new understanding of the kinds of hurricanes that can occur in the Gulf of Mexico. But it was supposed to be a way station on the way towards a higher level of protection. When it was uh, built, it was built to a requirement that, the, that Congress placed on it, which was that it give, make sure you have a structure there that will provide enough protection to people who live inside the levee system that they can continue to have flood insurance. Well, that's, that's a 100-year storm, the so-called 100-year storm. And what that really is is a, um, protection from a hurricane event that has a 1% chance of occurring in any year. And what that really means is that that kind of, kind of event has a 26% chance of occurring within uh, the life of a 30-year mortgage. So that's, that's, you know, that's not really the protection that you want to provide to a major metropolitan area. So Congress had also authorized the Corps to do a, a larger study 
looking at the entire coastline to look at how to protect from the equivalent of a Category 5 hurricane. And the core When you say of, coastline, you're still speaking Gulf? I'm talking about Louisiana coast, all oh, the Louisiana. way from, okay. from, mm-hmm. from the Mississippi River all the way to, to Lake Charles. Okay. And look at everything. And uh, that, that study, a Louisiana Coastal Protection and Restoration Study, was completed in 2009. Now, the state, um, it was started, the, 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 that, that study was started in 2005, immediately after Katrina, and it took them four years to do it. The state was concerned that its views of what it really wanted were not going to be included in that, so it went ahead and, and did its first version of the Coastal Master Plan in 2007 so that it could at least append it to that federal study when it got sent to Congress. What happened instead was that the Corps of Engineers uh, looked at what the state was doing, and at the end of their major you know, project through 2009, basically put together a laundry list of projects and said, well, here's a list of things that you know the state could do, the federal government could do to add protection, but Let's move forward with the with the coastal master plan. Use that as our basis, and we'll see what happens from there. Well, that that sort of short circuited things. So the state in 2012, its first update of the master plan, uh, did build uh, into the plan a project that would elevate the levees in New Orleans by three feet. And at that time, it believed that that would provide 500 year protection. Uh, which is a 0.2% chance of a storm surge occurring every year. So you're talking really um, uh, a much smaller, much smaller chance, but but mm-hmm. it's still significant. And re- mm-hmm. and the way of, of of you know comparing that is that Katrina, the way it hit the Mississippi Gulf Coast was a 400-year storm, and the way it hit St. Bernard Parish was a 250-year event. And the way the storm surge was in Lake Pontchartrain was a 150-year event. Now, you'll see all three of those are higher than 100-year, and that's the concern. This levee system that's in place today will be overtopped if we have another Katrina in everywhere. And so that's a concern. Now, the Corps did build in another uh, piece to this, something they call resiliency. And what that means is that you know, during Katrina, when water went over the top of levees and flood walls, they failed. Okay, some of the flood walls failed without even the water going over top of them. Uh, just rising water and canals caused them to fail. This time, the Corps promised that all of these uh, levees and flood walls will be there after the storm passes. That limits the amount of flooding from a 500-year event, so that um, maybe five feet. But five feet in the city of New Orleans is a lot of water, especially when uh, half the city is five feet below sea level. So you've got that whole area that's going to going to. So that that area that's five feet below sea level, I'm sure that includes the Ninth Ward again, of course. It includes the Ninth Ward. It includes all of New Orleans East. It includes um, uh, Broadwater. Um, There are other, you know. Broadwater, uh, you mean? yeah, and yeah. and and uh, and Lakeview. So so all the same areas that flooded all after the Katrina same areas that could flooded. get hit again. Okay, so Mark, I mean, I think that what really perturbed me, looking at that um, piece, there it is on, in the New York Times, big big pictures. People are going to look at those pictures, and and they'll read at least some of the copy, 
And um, and then on their front page, you know, they had, you know, uh, the coast is drowning or the drowning coast. And uh, likewise in Tuskegee, the implications of that for uh, investment in the city by people who are critical to our economic um, livelihood, it seems to me, is um, powerful, even if it can be trumped by our cultural richness, which, by the way, does not get the kind of investment the levies do. You know, we don't have any cultural levies in the city. That's a whole other issue that um, we're all trying to deal with with the, the new administration. But um, I, I'm very concerned about what that one piece does. On the one hand, it's very important for informing us so that we are dealing with reality. On the other hand, does it dissuade investment in the city, both by individuals and residential, uh, by families, as well as commercial and um, you know, higher level economic uh, investors. That that is a concern, um, and it's a concern that's been here for quite a while. To begin with, you have to remember that business business interests that are coming to the city are already running in running into that problem. If they didn't know it, their insurance companies are going to tell them yeah. because it's the insurance companies that have been leading the way, especially the reinsurance companies, the companies that insure the insurance companies. They've known for quite a while that sea level rise is a major problem and have known that Louisiana is a major risk issue. Uh, so that has driven up the cost of insurance and has driven up the cost of bonds, uh, fundraising for, for those sorts of things. Uh, there, there's no question about that. But on the other side, you have to remember the, the reason that we're in New Orleans, the reason that New Orleans still exists today is the same reason that it existed 300 years ago. At that time, Bienville and Iberville created this city as a, a location for uh, the country of France to create a colony that um, had the best from chance, the Mississippi River. It had the best chance of being as close to the mouth of the Mississippi River while still being able to be defensible. At that time, it was defensible against the English. Okay? Today, we're still in that same situation. We're the closest to the mouth of the Mississippi that is defensible against storm surge. Interesting. So that, that's, that's a positive thing. We yeah. do have the ability of dealing with this. The question is, do we have the financial resources? So the state got a, you know, got a silver lining through uh, the result of this huge black cloud, the, the oil spill, the BP oil spill, and it's using uh, a huge amount of money, close to $20 billion over the next 15 years will be available um, uh, to be used for coastal restoration projects. Many of those projects are going to be in the New Orleans area, south of New Orleans and east of New Orleans, adding wetlands that will help reduce storm surge. Um, where we have the problem is elevating the levees or figuring out alternatives to elevating the levees. Um, the, the 2017 master plan looked at that three-year, that three-foot elevation plan that it had in place in 2012 that it said was 500 years. And today they think because of the increase in the speed of sea level rise over the next 50 years that that's only 100-year uh, it'll keep us at 100 years. So they're having to deal 
with what do we do next? And that we're going to probably is going to be the next five years before we they figure out what what's going to happen with that. That's yeah, and that's that's the challenge, of course, is these these gaps of you know four, five, ten years in planning and and analyzing and getting the data straight and doing the research and figuring out what we should do. And in the meantime, of course, we're learning that the um, uh, oceans are rising faster than was expected and I think I recently heard it I mean the numbers keep changing they in do. a way so I want to get away from these numbers in just a second but I think I heard one number that said um, uh, we, we could see uh, ocean rise within the next 30 years that would have a dramatic impact I just I'm, I'm he- uh, hedging on exactly what because it doesn't matter right. it's going to change right. uh, the, but the, the state plan is using about two and a half feet of sea level rise as the estimate as a mid-level within for 50 years. Yeah. And four feet is the high level that they're yeah. looking at. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the reality, and, and, and everybody understands that. So, you know, we've been the canary in the mines for a while mm-hmm. on this, and it ha- that has two implications. One, will... Um, will other coastal areas around the world and will the governments and business interests um, that have a lot at stake, not to mention um, humanity, um, actually grapple with this issue on a global level uh, that needs to be, of course, with somebody like Trump in office that, that's not um, advancing the cause, but um, we'll get over that because that can't, that just can't last. And um, I just, I just wonder, and, and that was the one thing, again, about this article that bothered me a little bit is, okay, we've done Louisiana coast and it makes it look like we are drowning. But, you know, the implications for Manhattan and Miami and a lot of other places is phenomenal. And so is the New York Times going to go the next step and, and start showing exactly what's happening in those places too. Well, the, the Times has, and, and we have as well. We've, we've been reporting over a number of years that, the, that the, the risk for other communities is elevated. Miami's a good example of that. Perfect. Where the, where, They're almost worse uh, than you know, they are. I, I remember when, when I was in high school in Miami um, and I got my driver's license the first day I drove to Miami Beach and I drove Collins Avenue and there was a huge rainstorm and Collins Avenue flooded and I was only able to get home by driving through parking lots of hotels to <laughs> get back to the causeway to get back to the mainland. Okay. Yeah. Today, that kind of uh, flood event occurs um, once, a, once a month, maybe. They talk about it as king tide and it's not from rainfall although rainfall can do that, <coughs> it's actually from high tide where the tide water is coming in through the coral underneath the streets and coming up into the streets. And so that's a huge problem that they're having to deal with. In New York, um, New York is looking at how to build a barrier across uh, the East River to block storm surge from coming in to, to um, uh, help uh, block uh, a repeat of what happened during Hurricane Sandy mm-hmm. when uh, the southern end of, uh, Manhattan, of Manhattan where was I lived. flooded. <laughs> I and lived on Liberty Street just three blocks from... I lived on uh, Liberty Street on both ends of the island, which is, is not very far, um, within blocks of the river. Mm-hmm. 
and and we've seen Houston as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the, oh, yeah. the New York Times uh, had uh, uh, reporters. In fact, one of the reasons it took so long for our series to get done is because the two reporters who were involved in our series were in Houston yeah. dealing with the the flood risk that was occurring there. Okay, so um, uh, we're going to run out of time before um, we we could talk for this for hours, of course, but. Where do you come out on this? You know, how did the work that you did on this, um, uh, how did your thinking about this evolve as a result of this big section? Because, again, I'm I'm pinning this conversation in particular on the work that you all did journalistically. And I I really recommend people, how can they access this online for those who missed it in print? Uh, If they go NOLA.com, it's going to be there right on the front page. Uh, You'll be able to see uh, links to to the series. Um, It's uh, called (laughs) Our Drowning Coast. Our Drowning Coast, NOLA.com. That's where you can go and see this for yourself, and I highly recommend it. Do you have all the same pictures that are in the uh, New York Times spread? Because those were huge. We do. We do. The the photos were taken by their photographers and, and by us as well. Okay. Where, where do you come out? So, personally, I, I'm. I have. Um, uh, I'm. I'm trying to be optimistic. Uh, I, I think that there is a, a, a reason to be optimistic. I, I think by elevating the platform for talking about these issues, uh, we may be able to come up with some really significant solutions to coastlines.